I don't have a very complicated lesson to present this morning. I'm not sure I ever do. I'm not sure I'm capable of coming up with complex or complicated thoughts, but particularly this morning, I have a pretty simple premise. I wanted to talk just about this idea of being a new person. Um, you might even call it like transformation, right? As God talks about it in, in his word. And Romans chapter 12 kind of paints us a picture um, of where this transformation really is to be stemming from. You know, when you read the Bible story, you're pretty immediately confronted with the problem, right? And the problem is humanity. And it's not that God created us imperfectly. It's not like he failed in some facet of his creation when he spoke us into existence that like maybe he spoke something incorrectly or maybe he paused when he should have kept speaking us into creation or something weird happened. It's not any of that. It's choices that we've made. You see Adam and Eve make a poor choice when Satan tempts them, right? And they kind of are the model or the example of really kind of all of us, aren't they? We've all kind of had that fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil point in our life, right? And maybe multiple times. We face that daily, right? We, we feel Satan tempting us with something that our flesh wants. And we have kind of that tipping point that Adam and Eve faced in the garden, right? Like, am I going to choose the thing that God says is good for me and is right? Or am I going to choose what I want, what Satan is making appealing? And we know that through that kind of causation, through some of the poor choices we've made in life, God reveals to us that that really creates a barrier between us and him, right? And him being right and true, he can't have any part of anything other than that, right? And so when we make those decisions that go against his character, that there's a wall there. And we know as the story of the Bible unfolds and God really takes all of this effort and puts all the preparation on himself to be able to bridge that gap or tear down that wall as he talks about. That God has done a whole lot. But when we come to a place like Romans chapter 12, well, God's done all the heavy lifting, right? God's made all the plans. He's made all the creation. He's sacrificed his own son. When you come to Romans 12, you read in verse 1, Paul writing this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I don't pretend to believe or to give the impression or lie to myself about how much work and preparation God put into me being able to be something that is good to him, right? I don't want to give the impression that like we have the bulk of the responsibility in that. I think God has really done the heavy lifting, as I mentioned a moment ago. But what Romans chapter 12 is saying is that there is a way for us to respond to the heavy lifting, so to speak, that God's done. Right? And that's kind of what we talked about is in the form of discipleship this morning, even in our Bible class, if you're here to be a part of that is Jesus calls disciples to himself, and that's really our theme for this year that we've been trying to highlight with our learning goals and our living goals. But that is not where that ends. It's not that Jesus calls us to himself, and it's nice that he calls us, and that makes us right. 
And it's not just the fact that I intellectually acknowledge that Jesus' call is the right and true thing. And like I am, that appeals to me. It's Romans 12, 1 and 2, right? That that call actually begins to work in me some change. That who Jesus is actually gives me a model to be something different. Right? Now obviously that, that bridge isn't or that gap isn't spanned by a bridge without Jesus, right? Like there's no way I could see that model without Jesus and become that. He obviously offers us a sacrifice for sin. But what Romans 12 is saying is my spiritual response to Jesus' sacrifice, in fact, in verse 1 actually calls it my spiritual worship, right, is to be something different. And so that's what I want to talk about this morning in very plain terms is like what it is to be different, why that matters, what that means, how do I do that, right? I think Robin does a good job when he leads our classes because he thinks in ways that I don't always think, which I think is the benefit of being a body, right? We have a bunch of different types of thinkers and workers. And uh, Robin is always trying to get at the heart of a thing. Like what's what's the heart? What's the core of the message? What is Jesus really challenging us to do? And I think it's Romans 12, 1 and 2. Like Paul's kind of extrapolating. He's expanding on it. He's trying to highlight this for the Romans. But it's that we are not conformed to the world, right? It's not that the world sets out the pattern and we say, I like that pattern. I'm just going to kind of go in line with that, right? Or with the serpent, Satan, and Adam and Eve. Like, here's the tree, and this is the fruit that's offered to you. Forget what God said. This is the pattern, or this is the mold that I want you to be in. You should eat of it, right? Forget what God said about it. This is the new mold. You'll be like God, right? Well, don't be conformed to any kind of message like that. Don't be conformed by what the world says, but rather to be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is. This word transforming, and you may have heard this before, uh, in the Greek is like metamorphu, which is what we would say metamorphosis is, right? And it literally means something like um, with forming, right? So you get this idea that with forming, right, you're, you're sculpting and you're changing rather than conforming, which is kind of like a set pattern, a mold, right? Like the world's going to say, here's the mold. You should put your mind in this and you'll be what we want you to be. And God's saying, no, let, let me form, let me change your mind, right? And there's several other passages that actually this word comes up in. When Jesus is transfigured, that is the same word. Um, he was metamorphu or metamorphosis on the mountain, right? And think about what a stark contrast it was for Jesus to have done that. He was someone that they felt comfortable like walking around with and helping and hearing his teaching. And then when he did that, they're like, let's build altars, let's bow and worship, and let's, like, everything's different now. That's the kind of change we're talking about, right? That same change that the disciples with Jesus were just so astounded by on the mountain, that's what God wants us to do in our minds. That's the depth of change that he wants in us, right? That same type of change Jesus experienced. In fact, if you want to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, just for a moment, um, this is another place that this word pops up. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 3.
Oh, verse 18, I'm sorry. Verse 18 is what I was looking for. Um, it says this, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed, there's our word, right? into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, there's a lot to be said about this passage, and I don't pretend to understand all the intricacies of 2 Corinthians chapter 3. It's a very profound and amazing passage. But what I do get out of what's being uh, described here is a transformation, this metamorphosis, right? And it says we're going to be changed or transformed or uh, go through a metamorphosis that brings us into the same image. Right? And that's really the hope. Romans 12 is saying you need to be changed. Jesus was changed on the mountain, and it was a very distinct, glorious change, right? And what 2 Corinthians 3.18 is you know, kind of hinting at is like we have the opportunity to change into the similar kind of glory. This metamorphosis isn't just from like one type of boring to another type of boring or one form of uselessness to another form of uselessness, right? What God is proposing in Romans 12 and here is that the change, the transformation that he wants you to begin, this renewal of your mind is actually going to make you glorious like Jesus was glorious. And what I'm going to suggest as we continue to go is it's actually going to make you useful and fruitful when you weren't. So it's not just like A and B are different from each other, but they're equal. This is not an equal kind of change. You're going from being something good from being something evil. You're going from being fruitless to something fruitful and useful, right? So these are not equivalent things. So to be changed is to be transformed, to be elevated, right? And so really where I want us to kind of focus um, this morning slash afternoon is in Ephesians chapter 4. That's where I want us to kind of spend our time. Ephesians chapter 4. There's a lot of really just basic things I want to say about this passage. Um, so some of you in this audience uh, listening may be have been Christians for a long time. This is going to sound really simple and fundamental, and it is. There's, I'm not pretending that it's not. And so maybe you'll still find things useful to kind of come back to our roots. You know, if you're a Christian and you feel like you've been doing this for a long time and you're mature, well, come, come look at this passage and see how much you've changed and be encouraged by that. But maybe you're here this morning and you don't feel like maybe you've changed as much as you should. Or maybe this passage is going to challenge you to transform some more. Well, that's what I was hoping for in this. So hopefully, wherever you are, you can find some usefulness in this lesson. Um, but look at Ephesians chapter 4. Of course, Ephesians as a book begins with Paul in chapter 1 writing to people who are Christians. And chapter 1 is really about in Christ, right? The spiritual blessings that exist in Christ. And he's going to say in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ over and over and over and over and over again. Right? And eventually when you get to the end of the chapter, he's saying, I, I pray for a few things for you. And these are the, uh, what they are. Beginning in verse 18, he says, I pray that you would ha having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know. And then he lists a couple things. 
the hope to which he has called you. That's the one thing he wants them to know. Another thing is, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And then in verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? Right? And so those are the three things that he wants them to know. Right? Uh, I'll repeat them again. The hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. And I think this book centers around those three things. I think he's going to expound on like how we can know, how believers can know those three things in his prayer. And when you get to chapter 4, I think is in practical terms how you can know in a lot of ways the hope to which he's called you. And to how you are actually a glorious inheritance to God. You're not useless, right? And how you get to be or experience God's immeasurable greatness of his power. That's chapter 4. If I were going to sum up chapter 4, I think you could sum it up with those three things. Because look at verse 1 of chapter 4 of Ephesians. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Right? Chapter 1, know the hope to which he has called you. Right? There's our word. Worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led, hosts, uh, led a host of captive, captives and he gave gifts to men. And in saying he ascended, what does it mean but also that he has descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who has ascended far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. Verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, for whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I wanted to open by reading this long, longer section of uh, Ephesians chapter 4. Because like I mentioned, as we just started reading it, right, it's about the hope to which you've been called. And that's one of the things that Paul highlights in chapter 1 is like he wants them to know the hope to which you've been called. And what he's describing in chapter 4 is how to know that, right? What is that? Well, in chapter 4, verse 1, he's saying, like, there's a walk, a lifestyle that comes with this calling, right? And I would argue that there's a lot of kind of ways to think about 
in chapter 118 where he says there's a hope to which you've been called. I think there's a lot of ways to think about this, but one of the ways that chapter 4 might highlight the hope, right, to which you've been called is the body of chapter 4. And what we read is there's a new life to be lived. That's part of the hope, I believe. And you can live a life that's a godly life, that's a fruitful life in service to God, and this is what it looks like. You know, for a lot of us, we never had that hope, you know? Like just kind of in a physical way, in an earthly way, we would just kind of go about life feeling like our life didn't have a purpose or a meaning, spiritual or not, just across the board, it was kind of like a useless life. I don't know if anyone here in this room has ever felt that, but there's a lot of us that have. Part of the hope to the, of the calling that God is calling us is there's a manner of life that you're to live. There's a walk. There's a purpose. And what God is describing in here is part of that. He begins in verses 1 through uh, 7 there, describing part of what that is. But what he highlights is that the, you have been called with humility, gentleness, patience. You've called to bear with one another in love. You've called to maintain unity, right? Now, I don't pretend to know in every circumstance how to live those things out exactly right in any given moment. But what we as believers, if you classify yourself as a Christian this morning, what you need to challenge yourself with is by asking a very personal question. Am I proving that I have been called by God by the way that I'm living? Am I proving it to God? Am I proving it to the people around me? Am I proving it to myself that God has actually called me, right? And that there's a manner of life that I'm living that proves that walk or that calling. It's a really personal question and that maybe some other people might offer you some insights into to help you. But really, it's up to you and the Lord to sort through that honestly. I would also ask this question. Have I even begun that walk? Maybe you haven't. Maybe your life doesn't resemble this. Or maybe your life does resemble this, but it's coincidence. Like I grew up in a home that valued speaking the truth. Generally speaking, like we were taught not to lie, to like be respectful of the people around you, tell the truth, address people with like yes ma'am, no ma'am, that kind of stuff. That wasn't inherently spiritual teaching. That was just a, being a product of my context, right? And so there's a way that I could be truthful and not be spiritual just because of how I was brought up. And so you need to be honest and say, am I doing these things because the Lord wants them from me? Or am I doing them because I happen to already do them? There's a big difference in that. Because the moment that we're coincidentally Christian, the moment that we're challenged by Jesus to be a real disciple is the moment where we'll we'll break. Because it's no longer coincidence, right? I haven't actually been following God's will. I've been doing my own thing, which happened to line up with Jesus. But now that we're like parting ways, I'm going to go my way. That's where that leads. And so you have to ask yourself... Am I actually transformed by the renewing of my mind? Have I been kind of like caterpillars are? Have I been in like let God kind of put me through that cocoon and bring me to be something new? Or have I just been doing it my way? Let's uh, move further into chapter 4 because between what I was just talking about 
and what we're about to pick up reading, Paul makes the argument that really walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called produces maturity. Right? And when you're mature, you can be part of a body that is healthy and fitted together, right? And that when it's working, it properly supplies each part and joint with what it needs, which the body is a picture of all of us being mature and helping each other, right? But let's pick up in verse 17 of chapter 4 here. And as we read this, I want you to continue to kind of ask yourself these questions. Does this sound like me? All right. Does this sound like me? Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not why, the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from among you, along with uh, all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Now the assumption of this whole letter, right, is that in chapter 1, those he, were, he was writing were in Christ. And that's why he wrote to him about all his blessings. And that's why he can say, you know, you need to walk according to the manner with which you've been called. So, again, one of the things that we may have to ask ourselves is, have I actually answered that call? Have I been called to that life? But moving from that question, right, we look at this and does this sound like me? You know, if I'm answering honestly and I read something like this, therefore... Having put away all falsehood, I mean, that's like the assumption that has begun in them. Like Having put away all falsehood, now you take the next step, right? But have I even begun to put away all falsehood? Sometimes that's the things I say, right? Like I just speak falsehood, speak false things, untrue things. Sometimes that's the things I do. I can practice falsehood, right? I can be someone who makes a life about lies and false things. But what Paul is saying here is speak the truth with his neighbors for we are members of one another. Don't just put off, right? Don't just not be an old man and kind of be in limbo where you're not an old man, but you're not a new man. But by, as Romans 12 says, right, the transforming of your mind, it's not that you just stop 
putting on falsehood. It's that you start speaking the truth, right? And you can go through this list of things that is always stopping and starting, stopping and starting. The old man did this, stop that, and the new man should start doing this, right? For instance, verse 26, be angry. The old man would be angry and sin. The new man can get angry and manage not to sin, right? When you go down to uh, verse 27, the old man would give opportunity to the devil, wouldn't he? I would. Plenty of it. The new man doesn't do that. Verse 28, the things I used to steal, right? Like the old man has stolen. I've taken things that weren't mine in more ways than one. That doesn't always just rob in a store. I've taken things that are not mine to take. The new man doesn't do that. In fact, the new man goes a step further, right? He, the, the, the hands, the, the, the tools that he had to take the things that were not his, he now puts to good use, right? He uses those hands to work, honestly, to be able to provide for those who may have a need. It's like a total reversal, right? A transformation, a renewal of the mind. The mind is purposing the things that it has access to for, for God's purposes, right? Continue to work through this text here. Um, verse 29, my mouth used to be disposed to or given to like speech that was hurtful, corrupting, right? The people around me would just be kind of frustrated or filled with things that were not helpful. But now as a new man, I should be able to say honestly that the things that come out of my mouth are going to be for the edification or for the building up of the people that are in range to hear it, right? And today, I, you know, we have a lot more ability to be that way, right? With email or text messages or Snapchat or whatever you're going to do. Like, my words can have a much broader uh, range, right? People can hear my words from a lot further off. So this is maybe more important than ever to be someone that takes this seriously. Um, when you get down to verse 30, you know what the old man did? The man that gave all that opportunity to the devil frustrated the spirit of God, right? That's what verse 30 is saying. You grieve the spirit of God. God would look down on you and be upset, you know, that that was who you were, right? But the new man, the new man shouldn't be uh, the person that the Holy Spirit's going to be grieved with, right? But you should rather be uh, one who's sealed for the day of redemption by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit should be pleased with you and want to preserve you rather than be upset and grieved, right? In fact, when you get down to verse 31, he uh, just kind of sums up several things like bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, malice, right? All that stuff should be so far removed from you and you should be filled with being tenderhearted, kindness, forgiveness, right? And the root of all of this transformation through all of, of all of this metamorphosis is at the very end of verse 32. And it's rooted on, as God in Christ forgave you. Which comes back to what kind of this book's about, right? One of the things that Paul hoped for them to know, that he prayed for them to really, really, really know, is that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? 
And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? A lot of that is founded in the end of verse 32, because Christ forgave us. That's what makes saints possible. That's what makes it possible for God to inherit us. It makes it possible for us to be called. That is the calling, really. That is what God's power the immeasurable power that he displays to us is that. Like, that sums it all up, doesn't it? So when we think about what it means to be transformed, it means a lot of really practical things, right? Like, my day-to-day should look a little different. You know, some people that didn't do a very good job with this probably seemed like they did, at least for a time. Can you think about people that probably, in a lot of ways, looked transformed, but weren't biblically transformed like uh what romans chapter 12 verse 2 is saying right it's in your mind it's like a spirit thing it's internal and it works its way out and that's really what paul's arguing in ephesians chapter 4 he's saying you've been called to something right and in christ are all these spiritual blessings and when you get to chapter 4 and that should look like this in your life right it starts internally And it works its way to external. Have you known people personally or even people you've read about in the Bible that did it the opposite? That they just tried to clean up the externals and didn't really ever let the renewal of the mind take place. The forgiveness of sins take place. They never were really transformed. They never went through the cocoon of God like changing them to come out to be something different. You know, the first people that I think of when I think of that are Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. And I'm not going to say they weren't forgiven of their sins. I think there were things that they did that God probably was pleased with, but they had some serious flaws, right? Um, There's no indication in the text that they weren't Christians, like they hadn't been forgiven of their sins. But they hadn't really, like, done Ephesians 4 all the way. They hadn't done Romans 12 all the way. Like it hadn't gotten deep in there. In fact, when you get to, uh, where was I in Ephesians chapter 4 that mentioned greediness here? I know I saw it. Maybe that was Colossians 4 I was reading, or Colossians 3 that I was reading earlier. But. When you look at Ananias and Sapphira and you work yourself through this list, right, you could probably see some things in hindsight that they might not have realized about themselves, right? But even like verse 25, like that's one place that you might kind of look at and say, you know, Ananias and Sapphira had some falsehood about them, didn't they? They had some pretense. They wanted to look kind of one way and be another. They noticed in Acts chapter 5 that everybody around them was selling all their land and their stuff and giving it to the apostles so that everyone could have what they needed and be taken care of. And they, Specifically in that text, it says they noticed that. In fact, if you turn to Acts chapter 5 and you want to look at that really quickly with me, um, you can. Um, at the end of Acts chapter 4, verse 37, it says that... Um, Barnabas sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet, which is, I think, a model kind of of what was happening, right? And they're a great model if you read Acts chapter 4 of what it actually looks like to be renewed in your mind. 
But when you get to Acts chapter 5, it's offered as a contrast, right? You see this. A man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and only bought uh, only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. So if you just were to read that, you'd be like, okay, that's good, right? That's fine. Like They're really generous people. But look at what Peter says about this. Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And ultimately we know what ends up happening to him, and then moments later it seems to his wife. Therefore, put away all falsehood and speak truth to one another. Right. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Like These are things that seem directly tied to the, the bad example that we see in an essence of the fire. And so what I want to suggest this morning is kind of a warning for all of us. Obviously, one warning is if you haven't repented and been baptized like in Acts chapter 2, like you haven't begun to even answer the call of God. But the warning of Acts chapter 5, especially as we're talking about transformation this morning, is maybe more dangerous for most of us in this room than the first thing. And that is lying to ourselves about the depth of our transformation, the renewal. Like, have we convinced ourselves that we're really okay, that we're living the way God wants us to live, and that we've really changed when we're a lot like Ananias and Sapphira inside. And we have to ask, I mean, there's no way for me to look at Stephen and tell him that. I can see somewhat, some insight by his fruit, but not totally, right? Ultimately, like, God and Stephen are the only two people that could possibly know whether he's an Ananias, same thing for me, right? And so we each need to look at this text really carefully and ask ourselves, am I like this? Have I really let God renew, transform my mind and my heart? And because of that, is that fueling changes in my life? Uh, like I said, this, this lesson is not a complicated one. And in a lot of ways, is probably so basic that you might be tempted to kind of tune me out. And that's, I would be the same way if I were sitting in the chair. So I totally understand that. But I hope that nothing else this morning is it brings you back to kind of the core principles of the gospel, right? God has called us. And that's something that changes inside of us. And because of the inner man being uh, killed off and renewed and transformed and brought back as a new creation... That should fuel what I do and what people see in my life. And so if I can see fault in your life and you can see fault in my life, then we haven't been transformed the way that we should be. And so I'd encourage anyone here this morning that um, is struggling with that, reach out to someone just around you that you're comfortable with, that you could trust to help you with that, that will like point you to scriptural um, precedent and how to handle whatever it is you're dealing with that you can trust with it has God in has allowed them to renew him and transform them 
we sing a song kind of tradition for us as we sing a song after the lesson to encourage people just to kind of end on a positive encouraging note that as a body we can sing about also offers you a time to maybe still be chewing on some of the things that you hear in the lesson so at any point during the song even um, you realize you want prayers or help with something you can let us know publicly or you can even just be reaching out to people around you this isn't the invitation of this church really Whatever changes you need to make, the Lord is inviting you to make those changes. And so whenever you you're, you feel the need to make those changes is the right time to make them. So I'd encourage you guys while we stand and sing to think about some of these thoughts.